Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day. It is Tuesday, November the 19th, 2019. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is the second hour. We have a great, great uh, group headed this way. Justin Gibney is waiting in the wings from the AND campaign. Uh, And then we are going to talk with Michael Bird from Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, uh, getting a little international perspective on, wow, the intersection of faith and politics here in the United States. But let me lead off with this because this is the question that... More people have asked in the last 12 hours than any other question uh, on all of my social media feeds. And it is this this question, Chick-fil-A, question mark. That's it. That's That has been your whole question, Chick-fil-A, question mark. So for those of you not aware, uh, Chick-fil-A corporate has um, made a determination about its giving for the, uh, for the upcoming year. And they have changed some of their uh, recipient organizations. Now, let me just let me just lead off and say. Uh, who you to whom you choose to give uh, the benefits of your life and labor is completely up to you. Um, and you should never do so under compulsion uh, by others. You should also never um, fail to give because somebody tries to intimidate you into thinking a different way. So that really is the crux of the matter in the Chick-fil-A conversation. Uh, I do think that those who um, are... Uh, are outraged and are thinking that they are going to boycott Chick-fil-A as Christians um, because Chick-fil-A is no longer giving to to two organizations that they've given to in the past. I think that's a chicken little response. I don't think the sky is falling. Um, I don't think that this changes the best chicken sandwich in the world, um, even though I don't like it with pickles. Chick-fil-A gave a total of $115,000 last year to the Salvation Army. That is literally pocket change compared to the $150 million dollars that the Salvation Army collected in its Red Kettle campaign, which is ongoing, and you are encouraged to support if you feel like the Salvation Army is doing things that you want to support. Um, I also uh, am hearing a plain, like, chicken response. Uh, the chicken response goes something like this. Chick-fil-A lacks moral courage. That, that's just simply not true. And so, um, you know, let, let us be people who are honest about uh, – about what is happening and honest about what is not happening. Let us not be chicken little and let us not be calling other Christians chicken. Uh, So uh, they're not opening on Sunday. They're not yielding to some cultural temptation. Um, They are making a decision and a choice about their corporate giving, corporate giving. Think about that just for a second, corporate giving. Have you bothered to go to the Chick-fil-A website and actually see the list of their corporate partners, their corporate sponsors, the people who give more to them. I mean, not Chick-fil-A, sorry, Salvation Army. Go to the Salvation Army website, check out their corporate donors, their corporate partners. Um, And what you're going to see there is a really long list of of organizations that are not expressly Christian. Uh, You know, if you if there is an if there's an outrage culture out there about who is giving money to the Salvation Army, why aren't people outraged that organizations that are not Christian 
are giving money to the Salvation Army, which is expressly Christian. I don't know. That's just a curiosity to me, right? Like, let's be outraged about the right things. Here's the direction I'm going to take. I am going, this is going to be my response to Chick-fil-A. The Chick-fil-A question mark response for me is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 12. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully is also going to reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what this is about, okay? That's what this is about. So have a Second Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 12 response today um, to Chick-fil-A. Next up, Justin Gibney from the AND Campaign. He and I are, uh, we are going to make a little bit of a pivot. We're going to talk about pro-life Democrats. Two stories, one out of Louisiana and one out of the National Democratic Party. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Justin Gibney is an attorney. He is a former football player, which it's football season, so I feel like this is the time of year I should say that out loud. Uh, you can find him at andcampaign.org. You can also find him at thecruxandthecall.com. Justin, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. How how um, are your um, – I'm supposed to know this. I live in Nashville. I should know what the, van- the Commodores – How don't Oh, don't – oh, so there you go. Let's let that go. <laughs> Okay, so moving on to other topics of the day, um, let's talk about pro-life Democrats. Uh, talk with us about the re-election of John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. John Bell Edwards is one of my favorite uh, governors, uh, one of my favorite Democrats in general. He is a uh, socially moderate, socially more traditional um uh, a Democrat, which is a rarity in the Democrat Party, at least uh, those in the political or leadership class. And so he uh, won the governorship. And again, he won, won re-election in Louisiana, uh, which just goes to show that there is a place for, uh, you know, more moderate uh, folks within our system, which people try to kind of kick out there. But he's he's a strong governor. He's done a, a really good job. Um, and I think he's one of those people that could be the future of uh, our politics, you know, somebody who kind of looks for uh, to to represent both sides and to represent everyone in his state. One of the things I appreciate about him is that he is, um, you know, he's pro-life. He's unashamedly pro-life. Um, that is not a maybe I don't even know if the word is popular. That is not a easily defended platform in the Democratic Party today. Um, so what is the party saying about where candidates must stand on the issue of abortion? Well, there are official positions and then there are unofficial positions. Uh, and so you've heard a little bit of a back and forth. I think maybe earlier this year, the uh, the chair of the Democratic Party said there wasn't room for 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 people who weren't uh, pro-choice. And some folks have kind of backed off of that. 
uh, when you see uh, Governor Edwards win, there are a lot of uh, Democrats that are that are excited about it and taking credit for it because you kind of take those victories. Um, but he didn't. But at the same time, there were other candidates and other Democrats that were widely known nationwide that said they wouldn't be supporting him and that they couldn't support him because of that. Uh, so it's somewhat in flux, but generally to be accepted within the party, it's it's, it's fairly clear that uh, you're, you're going to need to be pro-choice. And he's kind of an exception to that rule. So it works in Louisiana. Um, and I think that the question is, does it work, you know, does it work nationally? And that is an important conversation um, you know, for us to continue having in soil, for us to continue um, tilling in our conversation together. Uh, I think that one of the things, Justin, that becomes increasingly clear to me is that there really are one-issue voters. Um, and yet, when we have our conversations about candidates, those conversations have to be pretty nuanced because people are not one issue. And and certainly the role and responsibility of a person serving in political office is not a one. It's not a one issue job. Yeah, governing. I don't know any governor, any any uh, executive that can govern based on one issue. And so to me, one issue voting doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense, although I understand prioritizing certain issues. Um, and so and so it's, it's a it's a complex conversation. I think you really have to look at all the issues and, and weigh all of them together, that doesn't mean that all the issues are equal. And so when you look at someone like Bell Edwards, you asked before this, is there, you know, is, is there space for a pro-life Democrat? I think absolutely. And, and really folks who are pro-life, even if you're Republican, you might want to think about supporting candidates like this. There are a couple uh, folks in Louisiana who are Democrats who are pro-life. If, if, if the pro-life issue is something that you care about, Rather than just simply voting on that, you may want to support Democrats who who actually support those things. So Katrina Jackson, she's now a senator in Louisiana, is someone else who's a pro-life Democrat. That that movement benefits from having people on both sides who are saying this, and it's hard for them to get support. Uh, I think I think a pro-life Democrat could win in Georgia. I think a pro-life Democrat could win in a lot of different states, but it's hard for them to get for them to get support. And if you really want a big tent, uh, that may be the way to go to support people, even who disagree with you on some other issues. OK, I like that approach. Um, I like that a lot. Um, well, you you said something there that I find really interesting, Justin, and it's about prioritizing certain issues. So not all issues are equal. Um we can't really be one issue voters because there are a myriad of issues, but we do prioritize issues. Talk with us, um, remind us about the 2020 statement, because I feel like what you're doing with that statement is actually helping people think through their priorities related to the 2020 election cycle. That's right. We wanted to give people a framework going into 2020. So I think a lot of Christians can agree, regardless of who you voted for in 2016, that as a body, we didn't come out looking so great in, in, in regards of how we interacted with each other and, and just how we acted, our conduct and our discourse. We want to go into 2020 a lot better than that. And so one one way is just to say, hey, here's a framework for how Christians should look at issues. And the AND campaign, is, as I've said on the show before, really believes that when Christians look at an issue, they should be thinking compassion and conviction. Uh, what's a compassionate way to look at this issue, but also what do my convictions say? What do Christian principles tell me? And so as we prioritize the issues, we really tried to get at issues that spoke to human dignity, 
right? So obviously the abortion issue is one that speaks to human dignity. We thought it necessary to speak out on that issue in a, in a comprehensive pro-life way, but also to speak out on poverty, because in a lot of instances, poverty plays a role in whether or not a woman thinks having a, an abortion is a good choice. Now, we can disagree on whether it's a good choice or not, but when you deal with poverty and you deal with people's ability to take care of their children, that's a factor in in that uh, whole abortion conversation. We also talked about health care. Um, we talked about racial issues, which really need to be addressed, especially when you talk about uh, maternal mortality rates, right? And in places like Mississippi and Alabama, if you want to be comprehensively pro-life, these are conversations that you need to be having. And every Christian should be able to prioritize the issues that are important to them. It just makes you a, a better informed voter. One of the things, Justin, that um, just working through the 2020 statement it sort of helped me do is like, OK, what is my what is my list of priority concerns and how do I prioritize them? And um, how much of my own life experience presses into that because of, you know, where I am geographically or where I am in terms of, you know, kids or parents or healthcare concerns or like, like I do think it, it helps us have a conversation with one another um, who, who come from completely different social locations. Um, it, it helps us have a conversation with one another because there's there's something that we can put on the table between us that's not this issue between us, right? It gives us something um, that we can print out and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about this. What are you thinking about this? And it's a, just a really, really excellent conversation tool um, to get the conversation going. So again, it's the 2020 statement. You can find it at andcampaign.org. I've got to take a quick break. Afterwards, Justin Gibney and I are going to continue our conversation. We're going to pivot. I'm going to ask him about this whole uh, Pete Buttigieg, South Carolina black leader endorsement. I'm going to use the word fiasco, and we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign. Um, all right, so Justin, South Carolina is just across your northern and eastern border. You are in uh, the great state of Georgia. Um, Give us your perspective on what has happened in the last several days related to the Pete Buttigieg campaign. Um, Familiarize us, if you will, with uh, Buttigieg's Douglas plan, which is where this actually all started, um, because I don't think that's getting any press. What's getting press is sort of the campaign mishandling of, uh, of this endorsement conversation. Yeah, so the um, Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign has been taking a lot of flack just because he's failed to connect to the African-American community. Uh, and that that isn't just nationally. I think he's had some serious issues uh, in South Bend where he's at with the African-American community. And so now he's come up with this Douglas plan uh, to help the African-American community. But I, what I think he's running into is the fact that you just can't manufacture, you know, a relationship during a campaign. Um, right. So what happened in South Carolina, I guess he had called around to see uh, what African-American influencers supported his campaign and supported him. He comes out with a list, but that list has people on it that said they didn't actually support it um, and that a lot of the people on the list weren't African-American anyway. Uh, apparently on the flyer that he sent out, it was some pictures of some people from Kenya or something like that. Just just a bad situation. I think the moral of the story to this point is you got to have sincere relationships. And, and those type of relationships aren't relationships that you really can create during a campaign. And I think that's the problem that this uh, 
that this campaign is running into. There's been conversation about whether his sexual orientation is the is the big issue with the black community. And I don't see that as the as, as the big issue. I think you have someone who um, just hasn't created those relationships, someone who, you know, uh, just hasn't created a lot of other reasons to stick out. And so people are saying, well, I, I'm ready to get to know him. But, you know, based on some of the relationships that he has in his his own city and his failure to kind of reach out to that community, it's not something that people just are just going to jump up and support him without kind of that foundation. That's pretty, uh, you know, that's pretty much the way I read it as well. Um, I love the uh, the observation that you can't manufacture relationships during a campaign. This is either, you know, these are either relationships that you have um, invested in, established, invested in, cultivated over time, or they're just simply not going to exist when the time comes that, you know, I, I mean, especially when you talk about endorsements, Um and you're going to talk about giving one endorsement to one candidate in a field of so many in a state as important as South Carolina. I, I, the, the entire uh, process was a little surprising to me just in terms of uh, of how campaigns, I think, ordinarily operate. Um, is there anything – are you familiar at all with Buttigieg's Douglas plan? Like I, I, I will just admit to you I'm not familiar with the plan at all. Just vaguely, uh, just okay. vaguely. But I, I know that it does uh, work to uh, I mean, it, it professes the work to uh, kind of deal with some racial disparities in, in different areas. Uh, so that's my general understanding. Yeah. My concern would be what input did he have uh, into it? Like, right. These are these are conversations that should be had um, with lots of uh, uh, black and brown folks. So this is a conversation that we will continue uh, to tilt. Hey, uh, Duvall Patrick is now uh, has now jumped in. Uh, give me your give me your take on that. Yeah, I think it's a little late. Um, I, I do think people believe he feels uh, fills a void, and that void is there based on people feeling like Biden might not be able to to finish the race. And so, if Biden's unable to finish the race race, who can step in and be that more establishment candidate, more moderate candidate that, that comes in there? People think Deval Patrick might be able to do that. Um, I think Cory Booker would say he's already there and, and can do that. So we'll have to see. He's going to have to do something to make a splash. So I'm guessing he's going to aim at New Hampshire, probably even because he's close to New Hampshire. He's a, the former Massachusetts governor. And then also uh, South Carolina. If he doesn't make a splash in New Hampshire and South Carolina, I mean coming in top three, then I don't. I, it's going to be really hard for him to, to really catch on. He's going to need some serious influencers. I'm guessing some Obama-type folks who are, who are close to Obama to endorse him and, and get him some traction very quickly. All right, uh, Justin Gibney, we're not going to ask you to endorse anyone today. We feel like it's still kind of early in the race. Yeah, too early. <laughs> uh, but we sure do appreciate the conversations that we have with you. That's Justin Gibney from the AND Campaign. You can uh, follow him on Twitter, Justin E. Gibney. You can also find him at andcampaign.org. Thank you, my friend. Take care. We'll be right back. Okay, so there is a little bit of clarification on the entire uh, Chick-fil-A issue this morning. If you wanted to go to the Christian Post, it's just ChristianPost.com. They actually, uh, you know, took the time to reach out to Chick-fil-A, which many, many other people have not done. You know, this is we all of the the biting at each uh, at each other in the Christian community. Hey, you know, you could just give them a call. 
Amid reports, I'm going to read here the lead from ChristianPost.com. Amid reports that fast food chain Chick-fil-A is halting donations to Christian groups, the Restaurants Foundation is maintaining uh, they are just simply philanthropically restructuring. They're not caving to political correctness in a pursuit of higher profits. Uh, and so uh, it's um, they they are talking about introducing a more focused giving approach. Uh, again, um, wow, let's um, let's not just eat each other up. OK, let's not just spend our time chewing each other up uh, in, in the Christian community here in the United States of America. Let's um, let's be building each other up. All right. My next guest, Michael Byrd, is actually going to give us a Christian a Christian's perspective from outside of the United States of America. Um, he recently had an, op, uh, an op-ed that appeared in the Washington Post, which uh, part of which is reposted actually on Pathios, in case you uh, can't get beyond that Washington Post paywall. This is an excellent piece. Michael Byrd uh, teaches at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He is a clergyman, and so this is a Christian brother who's going to help us get a little, gain a little perspective, gain a little perspective on how other Christians around the world see our political wrangling as Christians here in the U.S. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I can remember when I bought my very first GPS. (laughs) Wow. And to this day, I think the GPS may be man's greatest accomplishment since the invention of the wheel. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I don't know where I'd be without a navigation system in my car. It always knows right where I am. It never judges my ability to navigate. And more importantly, it knows how to get me where I need to go. Likewise, parents need to be like a GPS in the life of their teenager. When your teen begins to strike out on his own, he's bound to get lost a few times. So when he does, be ready to hold back the judgment, reach out in love, and gently guide him back home. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Reverend Dr. Michael Bird is the academic dean of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He's a senior research fellow with the Australian College of Theology. He's also the co-author with N.T. Wright of the New Testament in Its World, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. You can follow him on Twitter at mbird 12 Dr. Bird, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Yes, well, good morning, Carmen. Thank you for having me. Well, it's just a delight. We're going to have you back to specifically talk about the book that you have co-authored with N.T. Wright. But today, I really want to talk with you about this, um, well, this observation that you have made in this Washington Post uh, op-ed. And the title that they gave it is, Jesus Isn't Interested in America's Two-Party Division. I'm going to read the lead of the article and then just ask you to um, to tell us uh, your perspective on American Christianity uh, right now. So you, you say this, not long ago, I found myself in an American hotel room channel surfing America's political news circus. When I came across two programs featuring religious leaders passionately discoursing about President Trump in America. As a clergyman from Australia, I was naturally interested in the perspectives of my religious peers. I was particularly captured by how the two speakers in the parallel programs 
used intensely religious language, how they invoked God, how they quoted the Bible, and the way they mentioned a whole pantheon of religious themes. But their political convictions could not have been more disparate. Talk about the surreal experience. Well, it's odd, like, you know, going from Fox News to something like, uh, was it MSN, um, MSNBC, uh, just going between those two channels, it's it's just it's incredible, and it's to an, to an outsider observing this for the for the first time, it's like are they reporting the same events, or is just like universe one over here, and then an alternate universe uh, on the other channel, and they're both talking about God, Jesus, religion, politics, Trump, and it, it's just a completely uh, disorientating uh, experience to see these two very nakedly partisan views being projected onto religion. Well, in the way that uh, that you have described it, there does seem to be a use of Jesus, a use of religion, um, because that does move the audience. It, yes, it does. I mean, I think every the good thing I like is that everyone wants Jesus on their side, which I, I do find that kind of encouraging that Jesus still matters and uh, Jesus is the endorsement that everybody wants. Uh, but often people are engaging in a, a weaponizing of Christianity or a very selective adaptation of it to their political agenda, or more often than not, and this applies to both sides, they kind of get their, their politics that they, they want or they like, and then they just tack a little bit of religion on the end of it, trying to sort of, you know, baptize it and make it quasi-Christian in some way. So that, that's probably the, one of the things I've noticed as an outsider looking into how religion plays into American politics. So, um, Dr. Bird, you've now described yourself twice as an outsider. And, and so help us see ourselves um, from your perspective. And maybe, maybe the way that you could approach that is... Um, would this kind of conversation, would the endorsement of Jesus be such a high priority in a political campaign in Australia? Why or why not? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I see myself as an outsider uh, in the sense that I'm not from America. I mean, I spend a lot of time in America attending conferences, visiting churches and colleges. I quite like it. I quite love America for a number of reasons. This is the land that invented Chick-fil-A. Uh, in addition to that, you, uh, you really did help us out in the Second World War quite a lot. So I'm a rather big American fan. Uh, but we, we don't have that same polarity. Um, or, or the polarities we have play on somewhat different axes. You know, we do have a left-right divide in Australia, but it's not the same divisions that you have. For example, in Australia, there is widespread consensus on universal health care and gun control. Uh, the parties don't uh, argue over those things. They, they argue over other things. But religion definitely doesn't play the same role in Australian politics, or at least not usually. The last election we had in Australia, uh, religion did play a factor. In fact, the issue of uh, what a prime minister believes about hell actually did become a live election issue. Since we have a Pentecostal prime minister at the moment in Australia, Scott Morrison, and he was asked, you know, did he think that gays are going to hell because a very famous rugby player called Israel Folau had Instagrammed a Bible verse saying that thieves, adulterers, murderers, and gays are going to hell. So uh, religion doesn't normally play a big part in Australian politics, but in the last election, it did have a little bit of a spike. 
So again, I am uh, talking today with Michael Bird from Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he is the co-author of a book with N.T. Wright that uh, we're going to discuss on a later episode of Mornings with Carmen. But today we're talking about this very pr- provocative um, post uh, on the Washington Post in the religion section. It's a perspective piece, and it's entitled, Jesus Isn't Interested in America's Two-Party Division. Um, as, as I get deeper into uh, what you have talked about here— the um, the claims that Jesus would support particular positions um, on opposite sides of the American political aisle, you just view that as completely completely foreign to the Christ you know from Scripture and the Christ you know from uh, from your own uh, church. Talk about that. Well, let me give you a good example. I see a lot of people saying, "Look, you know, Jesus was open to." Um, uh, lepers, the outcast, that type of thing. So obviously Jesus would have uh, been very LBGTQ uh, affirming and, you know, and uh, been happy with same-sex marriage. The problem is, you know, I have a hard time believing that any first-century Jew, given what we know about uh, ancient Jews and what they said about um, sex and marriage and what they said particularly about uh, homosexual relations, I have a hard time believing any first century uh, Jew would be positively disposed towards it. Um, I also have an equally hard time believe, thinking that um, Jesus would believe in the right to bear arms and form, uh, form militias. I think that's equally as anachronistic. But people often get some sort of you know, pet political project or policy and they somehow want to find some sanction for it from Jesus, either through anachronism or some uh, strange and, and esoteric interpretation of the Gospels. All right, when we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Dr. Michael Bird. We're going to um, we're going to talk about uh, another portion of of his piece where he you know he's acknowledging that Jesus does not mean or following Jesus does not mean being apolitical or becoming disinterested in the affairs of government. Quite the opposite. We're going to pick up on that theme when we come back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. God is on the- Continuing my conversation with Dr. Michael Bird from Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. We are talking about uh, his piece posted in the Washington Post. It's actually uh, continuing to trend. It's an excellent, excellent article. Uh, Jesus isn't interested in America's two-party division. Wonderful observations from a brother in Christ uh, from uh, from his perspective um, in terms of Watching, seeing, experiencing what we as Christians in the United States, uh, it's come to be the water we swim in, and so we think it's natural, and he's really pointing out that it's really quite unnatural uh, in terms of who we are in Christ and how we ought to be operating in relationship to one another. Dr. Bird, um, following Jesus is not apolitical. Talk about that. Okay. Well, let me say, I don't think that Christians are kind of meant to hive off from society, go just establish their own little hippie commune, write a commentary on the book of Daniel, say the Lord's Prayer three times a day, and baptize yourself once a week just to make sure you're right with God and just wait for the Lord Almighty to wipe out everyone else. Uh, You know, we are called to be a city on the hill, the light of the world, to shine like stars in the darkness. So we do need to be, I think, socially and even politically engaged. Uh, The danger is, though, we will always just assume 
that Jesus is on our side or God is on our side. And we will say we are the party of Jesus. We are the pro-God party. Whereas we should always be a little bit more circumspect and say we aspire to be the party of, of Christian values, to be the party of the Sermon on the Mount, the party of the biblical prophets. Uh, we, we, we need to have that as an aspiration, not something that we are self-assured about. So that's, that's the first thing I would stress. And then the next thing we do, we need to constantly test ourselves whether do we believe this policy because it's expedient, because it's cultural, because it's how we were raised, or is it genuinely Christian? Uh, and and yeah, there's, there's a number of you know, uh, policies you know we, we could we could talk about along those lines, but there are some very clear teachings that Jesus does have, which we all should be able to agree upon, whether we're of the left or the right. The necessity of looking after the poor, speaking up for the voiceless and the vulnerable, speaking truth against tyranny and corruption. So that, that's the three things I think Christians should do when they're politically engaged. Don't be so self-assured that Jesus is on your side. Uh, be able to differentiate between what is perhaps cultural and what is perhaps Christian and focus on the areas for which there is clear consensus that Jesus and the New Testament authors taught about. I like uh, where you bring your, uh, where you sort of land the plane at the end uh, of the conversation um, and that is about the common good. Talk with us about the common good. Well, the, the common good is, I think, the idea of what promotes the human condition, what what anticipates and brings human flourishing, what makes it a, a fairer, just, equal, and more compassionate society, and how can Christians, using the resources of their faith, their scriptures, and their tradition, contribute to that? And I, I think that the good reality, uh, or the reality is that Christians do that. Now, I don't know about America, but in Australia, out of the top 25 charities, 23 of them are faith-based. So the people who are doing things like drug rehabilitation, people who are working with the disabled, people who are working with the, the elderly, um, this work is largely done by faith-based organizations. And although we believe in the separation of church and state, and that's the real meaning of secularism, it's a, it's a good thing, it doesn't mean that church and state cannot cooperate where there are common goods that they can pursue. And that can be things like having chaplains in the military. It can mean things like cooperating in um, um, overseas aid projects, you know, working with immunization programs in different parts of the world or in places where there's famine. Uh, Christians can resource their faith and their tradition and work with people of all sorts of different stripes to, to create a much better society and a much better world. All right, so we have a couple of minutes left. How about give us a little taste and see um, of the book that we are all anticipating, The New Testament in Its World, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. Um, and and maybe let's just start with, who is N.T. Wright, and why would you co-author a book with him? Uh, well, the reason is um, N.T. Wright is basically the Kanye of biblical studies. That's <laughs> probably the, uh, the best way I can describe it in the American idiom. Uh, N.T. Wright is, is a bit of a, a celebrity in biblical studies. He's written some of the best works. I think in the last 50 years on Jesus, on Paul. He's got some fantastic books like Surprised by Hope. 
and it's an honour being able to team up with him uh, to come up with this book, which is partly utilising his life's work to create a New Testament introduction, but the, it's also about uh, bringing readers to experience uh, the world of the first Christians, not just giving people more knowledge about the New Testament. We want people to capture the contagious excitement uh, of what it was like to be amongst the early church in Jerusalem or in Antioch or Ephesus or Rome. We want people to understand uh, the struggles, uh, the beliefs, the aspirations, uh, the worship uh, that people had it during this time. So we introduce them through this book into the early Christian writings, which is the New Testament, their theology, what they thought about God uh, and the world, uh, their religious experience, uh, what it was uh, they believed their mission in the world was. So it's, it's meant to be a comprehensive introduction to why Christianity began. Why did it take the shape and characteristics that it did and how Jesus was at the center of all things? Which seems like a fitting place for us uh, to spend our time if we want to see ourselves through Christ instead of just our uh, applying the the Christ who we imagine uh, to the issues of the day. So I just really appreciate it. Hey, today is the launch day, just so that you know, because you're probably not watching this. It is currently the number one bestseller on Amazon in the uh, in the Jesus, the Gospels, and Acts category. So congratulations on that. Uh, it, the book is released today, The New Testament in Its World, An Introduction to the History, Literature, and Theology of the First Christians. Dr. Michael Bird will come back again at another time, um, and we will talk more about the book. Thank you so much for your generosity of time today to talk about um, your perspective on America and, and her Christians. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me come. Have a great day. You guys can you follow too. him on Twitter at mbird12. We'll be right back. Okay, so as Thanksgiving approaches, uh, I, I want to invite us to consider an attitude of gratitude. So how, how might gratitude increase among us today? There are, I mean, you know, there's an array of scriptures um, in which our hearts are redirected from discontent or dissatisfaction to a recognition of God's presence, his goodness, his grace, his provision, his mercy. Um, have you noticed that you're, if you're in a cycle of finding fault, if you're in a cycle of discouragement, um, it can be really hard to find reason to praise, even God. It can, it can be difficult. And so I want to invite us between now and Thanksgiving, and we just, it's just barely more than a week. Uh, I want to invite us to, instead of finding fault, what if we intentionally focused on finding reason to give thanks? I mean, yes, you could have the little counter blessings mantra going on in your mind. Um, Ecclesiastes reminds us that there's a season for everything. And yet I, I observe a lot of people who seem to be really like stuck in a seasonal rut of just plowing. Like there's no seed planting. There's no peace. Uh, there's no, you know, sowing of peace. There's, there's no cultivation of, uh, of the harvest of righteousness. There's just a tearing down instead of a building up. Let us not be in a season of just tearing down. Not, let's, every day is not demo day in, in terms of the redo and the renewal of this fixer-upper uh, life we're living. All right, so what might happen if for the next week, in the lead-up to Thanksgiving, you and I intentionally focused on not finding fault, but instead finding reason to give thanks? 
Give, give thanks for our spouse or your neighbor, your kids, your parents, your employer, the people surrounding you today. Um, I am grateful for the person who makes the coffee and climbs the radio tower and uh, keeps us on the air. I am grateful for Paul who rises early every morning to connect us. I'm grateful for my husband who gets the kids up and fed and off to school while I'm here talking with you. So uh, consider the, the people for whom you are grateful and how it is that God is blessing you through them this day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.